This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. If you'd like to support the work we're doing, please visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Al Jazeera English, Democracy Now!, The Majority Report, Counterspin, The Tom Hartman Program, The Young Turks, and The David Pakman Show. No discussion of Israel's illegal occupation of the Palestinian territories is complete without mentioning the land of the free. No, not the US. I am, of course, referring to Gaza. Didn't you hear? Israel's occupation of that strip of land, crammed full of 1.8 million Palestinians, ended in 2005 with Ariel Sharon's disengagement, apparently. Israel doesn't occupy Gaza. Israel pulled out of the Gaza Strip. Here's the thing. The only people in the world who think Gaza isn't occupied are the Israelis. The United Nations still thinks it's occupied. The Gaza Strip continues to be regarded as part of the occupied Palestinian territory. Even Israel's bestest friend, the United States, includes Gaza under occupied territories. But given Israel did withdraw its troops and its illegal settlers in 2005, why is Gaza still considered occupied? Well, for a start, the Israelis decide who and what goes in and out of Gaza. With the help of their friends, the Egyptians, they control all the crossings. At one stage, the Israeli military wouldn't allow that well-known bomb-making ingredient, coriander, into free and independent Gaza. Okay, so Palestinians in the Gaza Strip can't just go on a road trip to Israel or the West Bank or even Egypt, but at least they can fly out of Gaza airport, right? Nope. Israel bombed it and has kept complete control over Gaza's airspace even after their disengagement. Maybe Gaza's Palestinians can go fishing instead. Wrong again. They can only fish up to three nautical miles off the coast before they get shot at. Israel maintains a naval blockade because Palestinians going fishing, that's obviously an anti-Semitic act of terrorism. So to recap, there is no occupation, but Israel completely, coincidentally, just happens to control Gaza's borders, airspace, territorial waters, and population register too. The Israelis literally get to define who is and who isn't a resident of Gaza. Occupation? What occupation? at Harvard University, Secretary of State John Kerry appeared to draw a link between the wave of violence and increased Israeli settlements in the occupied West Bank. Unless we get going, a two-state solution could conceivably be stolen from everybody. And there's been a massive increase in settlements over the course of the last years. Now you have this violence because there's a frustration that is growing. And a frustration among Israelis who don't see any movement. So I look at that and I say, you know, if that did explode, and I pray and hope it won't, and I think there are options to prevent that, but we would inevitably be, you know, in, at some point, we're going to have to be engaged in working through those kinds of difficulties. So 
better to try to find the ways to deal with it before that happens than later. That was Secretary of State John Kerry speaking Tuesday. Gideon Levy, could you respond to what he said and give us a sense of what the mood there is? Unfortunately, I must say that uh, John Kerry's uh, um, declaration is rather hypocritic. The Americans could have prevented long time ago. The Americans know exactly how to prevent it. If they really wanted to put an end to the occupation, the Israeli occupation would have come to its end long time ago. This policy of only serving carrots to Israel, of flattering to Israel again and again, is now decades long and never worked, never ever worked. And the Americans never really tried the alternative path of putting pressure on Israel in order to bring Israel back to the international law, back to legal and order, back to morality. And now John Kerry is saying that uh, this can be prevented and uh, and uh, should be prevented. Where were you in the last six, seven years? In the last 48 years? When Israel is so much depending on the United States like never before, and you just gave Israel a carte blanche to go wild in Gaza, in the West Bank, again and again, build settlements, go for wars, and never try to push Israel and to put an end to all this. So really, with all the respect to John Kerry's good intentions, this is not the way to deal with Israel after all those years. But Israeli government officials, Gideon Levy, if you could give us a sense of how they've responded uh, to uh, remarks made by U.S. officials. Uh, the defense minister, Moshe Yalon, uh, for example, accused Washington of completely misreading the situation on the ground in Israel-Palestine. The public security minister called the U.S. remarks foolish. Yeah, uh, they got all the same message from the Prime Minister's office now to condemn the United States. In the last years, uh, they found out that condemning the United States doesn't, doesn't take any price. Israel can talk to and about the American administration as if Israel is the superpower and the United States is just like a, one of those uh, small countries which depend on Israel, they allow themselves what no country in the world allows themselves vis-a-vis -vis the United States, going and trying to sabotage an international agreement with Iran in the American Congress again, the, uh, against the American administration, things which are unheard of by any other country, Israel learned in the recent years that they are possible, and not only possible, they are productive and they are working. So, sure, Israel will attack now the Americans for any kind of criticism. I, I want to bring you know, the Diane. American will not uh, I want to uh, punish. I want to bring Diana Butu into back into the conversation. Also, Netanyahu speaking at the UN General Assembly, saying that the, Israel will now uh, uh, negotiate with the Palestinians with uh, without any preconditions.
that it's a farce. I mean, one of the things that uh, Netanyahu has said over and over again is that he's not going to stop any settlement construction. In fact, that he's going to continue it. He, uh, and he, in fact, this is what has actually happened. In addition, what he's also said is that they reserve the right to continue to kill Palestinians. And so while he indicates that he has no preconditions, in fact, it's quite the opposite. But the issue is not whether there are preconditions. It's whether the negotiations process actually works. And it doesn't. I was part of the negotiations process. You cannot negotiate with one very powerful party backed by a superpower, the United States, and a very weak party. We call that dictation. Uh, the negotiations have failed over the course of the past 22 years. And so now is the time, rather than heading back to negotiations, which only serve to give Israel more legitimacy, only serve to give Israel more international recognition. In fact, more countries started recognizing Israel after the negotiations process began than before it. Uh, rather than going back to that process, which was, which was failed and futile for Palestinians, there needs to be a different way. And this different way is to be pushing for boycotts against Israel, to be pushing for divestment, and to be pushing for sanctions, to be pushing for Israel to be held accountable under international law, and to be pushing for Israel's isolation. All of those measures will work, but going back to a failed negotiations process will not. How does the Al-Aqsa Mosque fit into this, the current unrest? Uh, Amy, this is one of the reasons that uh, that we are seeing the, the, this, these latest round and latest wave of protests. If you just look back about a year ago, a year ago there was a very brutal attack, Israeli attack on Gaza in which, Israelis, uh, in which the Israeli army killed more than 2,000 Palestinians, including more than 500 uh, children. 100,000 uh, Palestinian homes and businesses were, were demolished or destroyed and still to this day remain unbuilt. Add to that this summer's uh, attacks on by, by, excuse me, by Israeli settlers on Palestinians, including the burning of a, of a Palestinian home in the, in the West Bank town of Duma that ended up killing an 18-month-old and, uh, and his two parents. Add to that the Israeli measures to allow the Temple Mount Faithful, a group that actually believes in the destruction of the Al-Aqsa Mosque, allowing them onto the Al-Aqsa uh, compound uh, under the guise of religious freedom when there is nothing uh, involving uh, a prayer there at all, allowing them to be able to go there while, at the, while simultaneously denying Palestinians and denying Muslims the ability to be able to go to, to their holy sites. This is, this is exactly the recipe that the Israelis have been laying out time and again uh, in order to spark another wave of protests or an intifada, uh, what have you. And so the, the issue of Al-Aqsa plays uh, is very central, but it's not just Al-Aqsa, it's all of the other measures that have been taken as well. Sam, in your opinion, what is the Israeli government's plan with the Palestinians? One, treat them as second-class citizens forever. Two, a mass expulsion. Three, massacre. And what are the facts, and what the facts on the ground they are trying to create? How will this help their agenda, whatever it is? I, I have no idea if there is a long-term plan. I think it's, I think it's basically treat them as second-class citizens forever. Um, 
you know, to the extent that they have any type of horizon. The, the facts on the ground are they just keep building more settlements. And um, finally, have you heard what the Israeli military considers uh, mowing the grass? Yes. Um, that is basically what they say is that every um, every now and then they got to basically bomb Gaza um, I don't know if it's specifically bomb Gaza or just basically attack the Palestinians as a way of just sort of beating them back. And then they'd they wait again until the grass grows, as it were, until and that's it. There was a the fascinating um uh op ed in Haaretz. I don't I don't have it with me with um where did I had that right here? The uh, op-ed in Haaretz, um, basically saying like there, there's a real problem here. I mean, I'm sure that's they've written that op-ed multiple times, but it's a video of a an Israeli soldier who is clearly not in a life-threatening situation, trying to grab a hold of I don't know ten year ki- ten year old kid somewhere around there, and is literally like being. Attacked is a strong word. I think from their perspectives, they're trying to attack this soldier by uh, one or two teenage girls and some elderly women who are trying to get him off of the kid. And, um, you know, they're just, it, it is just the most pathetic sight you could imagine. And, then a, uh, I guess this guy's CO comes over and just basically tells him, forget it. But like, you know, when you have soldiers going after people, and the Haaretz piece makes the point of like, you know, we saw what happened like a week or two ago when, um, an Israeli soldier shot a Palestinian kid who supposedly threw a rock at him in the back. Um, when you're, when your military is, uh, basically wrestling, literally and figuratively wrestling with children. There's a deep, deep policy prog- uh, problem. And it's, you know, there's a lot of different ways you can look at this. You know, uh, supporters of Israel, of the ilk that I come across at many times, including sometimes at my holiday table, um, it's impossible to talk to them about the sort of the the morality aspects or the justice aspects or et cetera, et cetera. And and I and I do think that it's much easier to talk about specific acts as being immoral rather than sort of like, you know, the arguments of who's right and who's wrong, broadly speaking, in this in the history of Israel, I think is not terribly uh fruitful. The way I approach uh, people who are supportive of Israel uh, is basically to say, like, do you really think this is sustainable? Like, I mean, do you really think that you are supporting Israel's ability to exist by supporting things like this? Like, you can come up with all the justifications that you want to come up with. 
But even if every single one of them is true, what what's the strategy here? What I mean, where, where is this? How is this resolved? Because that's the answer they cannot answer. Because then you know, there's only three, right? Right? There's only three options, or four options. Treat them as second-class citizens forever, but that is not, you cannot sustain that. You can't do it. It's not possible. A mass expulsion, which frankly is also virtually impossible. I don't know how you do that. I, I, don't, I don't know how you do that in this day and age. I don't know how you, like, you know, it would start a war with Jordan. At the very least. Um, or a massacre. And, and what, well, and it's, yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I have no doubt that there are people, uh, who subscribe to these things, but, you know, when I'm having these conversations with people, that, that, that is the questions that you have to put to them. Like, what is the solution here? And they cannot come up with that. And I, I actually think that, like, you know, this is, this is going to end up being the, um, to the extent that there's an existential threat to Israel, this is what it is. It's that they don't have an answer or they refuse to, to accept the most obvious answer um, to ensure the survival of Israel as a Jewish state. And because that's where I find the, the, the arguments to be most fruitful in, in my experience. Is on their territory. This is what you want in the end. There's only one way to get there. But that's when I get the ugh. <laughs> oh, so I guess the Holocaust. How never does it happen. exactly? Okay. Are you not aware that there was an attempt to build a a, a, a Muslim prayer site on 9/11? Palestinians kill three Israelis as violence mounts in Day of Rage, was the headline over our Washington Post story October 13th. The story began, quote, Three Israelis were killed and nearly two dozen injured in a series of Palestinian attacks Tuesday, sparking calls by Israeli officials to cordon off Arab neighborhoods in Jerusalem and a decision by the security cabinet to place soldiers in city centers to support the police, close quote. The next graph noted, quote, almost two weeks of daily violence, including a spate of attacks by knife-wielding Palestinian teenagers, has left Israelis deeply shaken and fearful of another sustained Palestinian uprising, close quote, and that as many as 22 Israelis were reported wounded. This was followed by a quote from Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu promising vengeance. Quote, Israel will settle the score with the murderers and those who help them. We will cut the hands of whoever tries to hurt us, close quote. 
Only several paragraphs in does the story give any indication that the violence has been anything other than one way. Quote, eight Israelis have been slain and dozens have been wounded in the last couple of weeks, while at least 28 Palestinians have been killed by Israelis. According to Israeli authorities, a dozen of the slain Palestinians were attackers. The rest died in clashes with Israeli forces, close quote. So here, the heretofore unmentioned Palestinian dead come in at the back end of a sentence about Israeli fatalities, to whose numbers are added dozens of wounded, so it's not immediately clear that there are three and a half times as many dead on one side as the other. Then comes a sort of suggestion that you oughtn't care too much about the Palestinian dead. A dozen of them, according to Israeli authorities, were attackers, while the rest... You have to do the math yourself to figure out that these amount to twice as many as the Israeli dead died in clashes with the Israeli forces. The word clashes, of course, connotes a power symmetry when the Israeli military, thanks in part to U.S. aid, is one of the best armed in the world. Palestinians whom they clash with are typically unarmed or equipped with homemade weapons. Netanyahu's vow to settle the score suggests a view of human life as something that can be tallied up, with deaths on one side balancing deaths on the other. If media outlets are going to present that as a legitimate perspective, they might as well acknowledge the actual score in this horrific violence. Since 2009, according to the Israeli human rights group B'Tselem, Palestinians have killed 43 Israeli civilians and 12 members of Israeli security forces. Israeli security forces have killed 636 Palestinians, with Israeli civilians killing another 14. This doesn't include the military assault on the Gaza Strip in July of 2014, during which an estimated 1,767 Palestinians died, along with 64 Israeli soldiers and two Israeli civilians. Max Blumenthal in the studio with me. At, you can tweet him at, at Max Blumenthal. Uh, Max, last week I was rereading Martin Luther King's letter from a Birmingham jail. And he says, um, you know, in, in any nonviolent campaign, there are four basic steps. Collection of the facts to determine whether injustices exist, negotiation, self-purification, and direct action. And he talks about how we've done all these. And then he says, you may well ask, why direct action? Well, sit in, why marches, sit-ins, and so forth? Is negotiation a better path? And then he talks, I'm not afraid of the word tension. I have earnestly opposed violent tension. But there is a type of constructive nonviolent tension which is necessary for growth. What do you say to folks who say, you know, the Palestinians have been dealt a bad hand. They, they got their land ripped off by the United Nations. It wasn't their idea. It, and, and, and the Jews who came to live in, in Jerusalem or in Israel, uh, you know, they, it, they didn't say, oh, you know, take that Palestinian's land. They, uh, this was something that was put together by the UN. Um, but the, and, and therefore the Palestinians need to be a little more 
uh, you know, nonviolent? Why don't they follow the examples of Gandhi or Martin Luther King? You know, there's a there is a massive nonviolent campaign in Israeli prisons waged by Palestinians right now. Uh, one of the um, leaders of this campaign is Mohammed Alam, who has just come out of a coma after a 68-day hunger strike and vowed to continue. He's chained to his bed, and he will not be released by Israeli authorities. He's being held without charges under administrative detention. Before him was Khadr Adnan, who's defeated Israel twice through, with his stomach, waging hunger strikes of over 60 days because he keeps getting detained without charges just as Bobby Sands and the hunger strikers in Northern Ireland were. And Mohammed Alam could die. And there are protests across Palestine, even inside Israel. Palestinian citizens protested outside of his prison and were brutally attacked by Israeli police. The Palestinian Gandhis are right in our face. They're demonstrating in villages like Na'alin and Belin and Nabi Saleh, and they're, they're rotting in Israeli military prisons. Um, some of them are as young as 13 years old. They're pulled out of their beds for protesting the theft of their land at night and thrown in jail and brought before a kangaroo court where the conviction rate is 99.97%. I've witnessed those proceedings. I described them in my book, Goliath. And so we have all these columnists who are basically devoid of cerebral activity like Nicholas Kristof or Thomas Friedman who constantly call for Palestinian Gandhis to come to the fore. But when they do, as they have since 1948 and before, they're ignored. And these columnists and our opinion makers and our politicians, our political class, do nothing for them. Mm. And so... If you're gonna if you're gonna say you support Palestinian nonviolence, then come out and support it because it's right there in your face. What what is the solution? I mean, you've been there, you've seen it, you've you've seen the horrors of it. You've you've uh, and all the way back to your childhood when you took the you know the, the birthright tour, the Israel. Like, let's visit Israel and see how wonderful it is. Yeah. Um, you've seen the whole thing. What's the solution? What should the what should the United States be doing? What should what should our viewers and listeners be conveying to their legislators as you know you should support this? Well, I, I, I diagnosed the problem. The problem is institutional discrimination or apartheid. Right. Um, Israeli apartheid is the problem that Israel, in order to maintain itself as an ethnically exclusive Jewish state, has. Er, erase the rights of Palestinians well, this, and this, excludes them. This brings me back to my U.S. analogy. I mean, uh, originally it was white Anglo-Saxon Protestants who colonized the, the at least the northeastern United States and the midwestern United States, and and it was exclusively for them. I mean, you know, yeah. we, we we now have a majority of Catholics on the Supreme Court. Three generations ago, that would have been unimaginable. A century or two centuries ago, it would have been illegal, uh, and that's white people. And and so I'd be. Mean, We've we have gone from being basically an ethnically pure, at least in terms of our power structure society, to one that is becoming less and less so. Um, well, yeah, would yeah. Israel just dissolve if it ceased to be just exclusively a Jewish state? Well, let me let me just uh, let me uh, explain what your listeners can do and what a poten potential solution could look like. But there's the book that you know we, we, we need to look at by Michael Mann called The Dark Side of Democracy, and it looks at how the United States became a liberal democracy. It became a liberal democracy after committing genocide. Right. Um, so I don't want that to happen in Israel, Palestine, it, and I, I believe that it could 
happen on in, in so many ways it has to be stopped. It's an emergency situation. And the root of the problem is this discriminatory structure. So that discriminatory structure does have to be dissolved. It can be dissolved by implementing Resolution 181, which was passed by the UN, accepted by Israel, which requires Israel to provide equal rights to Palestinians inside Israel. Uh, resolution uh, 194, which was accepted by Israel, deceptively so, but nevertheless accepted, which requires Israel to provide the right of return to Palestinian refugees. We don't deny the right of return to refugees in Congo, in Bosnia, or anywhere else. It's only here. And then number three, Resolution 242, end the occupation of the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. And until they do so, Israel will be boycotted, divested from, and sanctioned. But aren't these they are saying if means. we do these three things, we will no longer be Israel? They can be Israel. Why can't they be Israel? Why do, but they can't be an apartheid state that provides super, superior rights so to what people happens on the basis when, of their ethnicity more than half, and religion. What happens when more than half of the population of Israel is no longer Jewish? The crisis ends. The crisis ends, and the misery of these millions of people. So, what who happens are if the majority ends. decides to, to flip it the way that Patrick Henry was so terrified of, and say, "Okay, you know, now it's now it's the Jews who are going to go live in Gaza in the prison camp." Well, we are still indulging white fears in the United States about African Americans, and this is really what's behind police terror. Uh -huh. This is what the Black Lives Matter movement is trying to reverse. We shouldn't indulge these same kind of fears in order to prevent the resolution of a crisis that's been going on for almost 70 years. Let's stop reinforcing the bloody status quo and start looking towards actual democracy. Brilliant. Brilliant. Max Blumenthal, his new book, The 51-Day War, Ruin and Resistance in Gaza. Uh, and Max, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Great talking with you. Benjamin Netanyahu is drawing criticism for apparently calling into question who bears ultimate responsibility for the Holocaust. Now, this was at a speech to the Zionist Congress on Tuesday night, and he said Hitler didn't want to exterminate the Jews at the time. He wanted to expel the Jews. The Prime Minister said that the Mufti, Haj Amin al-Husseini, uh, at the time was the, uh, the Grand Mufti of, uh, of Jerusalem, had protested to Hitler that they'll come here, referring to Palestine, speaking about uh, who would eventually become the Israelis. So what should I do with them? Mr. Netanyahu quoted Hitler as asking Mr. Husseini. He said, burn them. So Hitler, apparently not wanting to commit genocide, up until speaking with the Mufti of Jerusalem, who convinced him to rather than expel them, to kill them. Now, this is not the first person who has tried to make the case that the Mufti bears responsibility for the Holocaust, nor is it the first time that Netanyahu has made this case. He's been doing it since back in the 90s. Uh, and he says, by the way, after getting this criticism, that he is not actually absolving Adolf Hitler of any of the responsibility, but he is laying out some alternate history where Hitler did not want to kill the Jews. Even though historically at this time it was already ongoing and Hitler had been speaking about his genocidal plans for years at this point. 
Now, in these videos, normally I give a final judgment on an issue, but I am not going to pretend that I am an expert on the Holocaust or German history or Israeli history, uh, but thankfully others are. And as they have in the past when these allegations have come up, they are knocking them down. Uh, Professor Mir Lidvak, a historian at uh, Tel Aviv University, called the speech a lie and a disgrace. Isaac Herzog, the Israeli leader of the opposition Zionist Union Party, said the remark was a dangerous distortion of history that trivializes the Holocaust, trivializes the Nazis, and share of the, the terrible dictator Adolf Hitler's terrible tragedy of our people during the Holocaust. And then finally, Germany, being uh, very upfront about this issue, a representative of Germany's Chancellor Angela Merkel says Germans know that responsibility for the Holocaust is very much our own. All Germans know the history of the murderous race mania of the Nazis that led to the break with civilization that was the Holocaust. Now, if you look into what the, the Mufti referenced in Netanyahu's comments did actually do historically, he seems like a bit of a monster, certainly a bad guy, who did call for exterminations and mass violence against Jews. But Adolf Hitler did not need to be convinced of this by the Mufti or by anyone else. He was following a plan that he had laid out years before, and thus, both from my point of view and the point of view of the experts, bears ultimate responsibility for the Holocaust, and that's their final judgment. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I would like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and get everything you can get used from a place like Craigslist. You will save yourself a boatload of money and reduce the endless flow of new stuff getting shipped across the world because that seems more convenient than meeting a neighbor. Failing that, try a locally owned small business. Failing that, if you're left with no choice other than to buy something from a place like Amazon, then at least there's a way you can do it and support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, Amazon.ca, or Amazon.co.uk from the banner at bestofleft.com and shop as you normally would. Better yet, click through on the link to your country's Amazon store only once and then bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whether that be rejecting consumption altogether, consuming sustainably, or at least consuming in a subversive way. You hear a lot in the U.S. media about a clash of narratives in the fighting between Palestinians and Israelis. But the truth is, U.S. news is shaped much more by one perspective than the other. Israeli deaths are foregrounded, with those of Palestinians often appearing as a dependent clause, even though they are far greater. Claims by Israeli authorities are presented matter-of-factly, even when they are disputed. And the overall image is of a battle between symmetrical forces. Even when one is armed with knives and rocks, and the other with one of the most powerful militaries in the world. It's a presentation that is more skewed in some ways than that presented in Israeli media, and it poorly serves those hoping to make sense of the situation or to envision possible ways forward. So what should we keep in mind as we read about what's called the latest round of violence in Israel-Palestine, including fights over holy sites in Jerusalem? Joining us now to discuss the issues is Youssef Munair. He's executive director of the coalition U.S. Campaign to End the Israeli Occupation. Youssef Munair, welcome back to Counterspin. Great to be back. 
Well, U.S. media tend to treat the conflict between Israel and Palestine as just which side are you on? You know, Israelis say and believe this, Palestinians say and believe that. But it ought to be a reportable story. And it is possible to deplore knife attacks by Palestinians, for example, and still demand that these be presented in a broader context. What would that broader context on the most recent events include? Well, I think one of the the biggest challenges really is the schedule, if you will, on which this issue is covered. The moments when that happens is almost always when Israelis are exposed to greater degrees of violence. The problem with this, of course, is that it creates a frame of understanding in the mind of the American news consumer that these events happen in something of a vacuum. What's missing is what happens in between and always, and that is the status quo of military occupation, which is itself a system of violence, a system that holds Palestinians, that holds human beings in a condition that is contrary to the natural human condition of freedom and uses force, uses violence to keep them in that position. So this systematic violence which Palestinians are essentially acting out against in these outbursts which eventually get covered does not get covered the way that it should. And so what we end up getting is a very skewed representation in our media of what the real dynamics of violence are. Someone noted that a recent USA Today story mentioned the occupation in its lead, in its first paragraph, which is something actually quite rare. Uh, often the, the story zooms in on whatever the most recent clash was, and the occupation, if it gets in there, is kind of at the end, you know, as part of a list of other things going on, when in fact that is a crucial context in any story one would think of, of violence. Absolutely, and just because violence against Israelis stops for any period of time, the occupation doesn't stop. It remains consistent. The violence of the occupation remains consistent, and this is the context in which all of this is occurring. And unfortunately, in the coverage that we often see, this incident-based coverage, even the reporting of those incidents is highly skewed and very much a representation of official Israeli narratives. And we see this time after time when you have any of these incidents with things as simple as a physical altercation, a stabbing, an attack on one group of people or a family, for example. Well, who has access to the information of what takes place in this situation? Primarily, it's the Israeli military, and it's the Israeli military that gets to decide what information to release. And if you are a Western reporter you are beholden to the information that the Israeli military releases. So they get to set the terms of what actually took place, unless, of course, the Western reporters take the initiative to actually go and investigate on the scene of these events, talk to witnesses they were there, talk to Palestinians who experienced what's going on, and report as well that perspective on the events that took place. And more often than not, we only see a regurgitation 
of the official Israeli narrative in the vast majority of these events. Well, I'm looking at an AP story from today, from October 29th. The headline is, Palestinians killed in West Bank in stabbing incidents. As you read the piece, you learn that police said one of the Palestinians killed had stabbed a soldier, wounding him lightly, and that the military said the other person had attempted to stab a soldier, but a Palestinian witness disputes that. Now, there you see at work not just the reliance on the Israeli police and the military for the information, but there also doesn't seem to be any questioning of the idea that the penalty for stabbing or maybe attempting to stab someone is summary execution. Have reporters just become so inured to that that they leave it unchallenged? It certainly seems that way, and of course that's what we've seen in terms of the response from the Israeli security apparatus, whether it's the police or the military, in response to some of these incidents. And in many cases, what happens is a Palestinian is shot and killed even at a time when they are not presenting any threat, when non-lethal force could be used to arrest them. And we've seen some of these incidents caught on video as well. We've also seen incidents where Palestinians who have already been subdued are then fired into additional times and essentially executed. This is, of course, very troubling, not only because it is an illegal extrajudicial assassination, but also because it speaks to the message that the Israeli government is trying to send to Palestinians, and it speaks to how they believe this problem is going to be solved. That only through the use of brute force, that only through the expression that any resistance will be met with the strongest possible repression will Palestinians get the message that this has to stop. Unfortunately, what we've seen is that the entrenchment of the occupation, the continuance of these policies, is only likely to continue to stoke the ire of, of Palestinians living under these oppressive systems. Well, let me continue on that idea of what sends a message. A few weeks back, lots of folks thought that it was bizarre that Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu would claim that a Palestinian gave Hitler the idea of the Holocaust. But in a recent piece for The Nation, you say that outlandish claims like that actually also have a kind of message delivery purpose. Tell us a little about that. Sure. Well, you know, what the Israeli prime minister did in essentially saying that Hitler didn't intend to exterminate the Jews until a Palestinian gave him the idea is problematic on so many levels, especially coming from an Israeli prime minister and the representative of the state which has often really condemned Holocaust revisionism. But it's part of something bigger as well. It's part of this attempt that Netanyahu has often made, and many others as well have made, to suggest that the reason that Palestinians behave that the way that they do toward Israelis is because of a deep-seated, innate hatred of Jews, not because of the experience that they've had living under the jackboot of military occupation, not because of the experience of dispossession that took place when the State of Israel was created, when hundreds of thousands of refugees were forced from their homes, not because of any of that. Rather, what they want people to believe is that Palestinians, by virtue of who they are, are opposed to Jews. And 
The reason that they argue this is because they would like to continue policies of brute force. It's obviously a, a very racist analysis, an analysis that's very wrong as well, but it is a politically convenient analysis for those who do not want to end the military occupation, who do not want to come to a just and lasting peace agreement with Palestinians, who, whether they like it or not, are going to be living on that land with Israelis for as long as time will allow. You know, I think it's a very dangerous uh, narrative that uh, the Israeli Prime Minister and many others are engaging in as well. reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, Save Susia. Susia is a Palestinian village in Hebron Hills, part of the occupied West Bank. Over the summer, it was marked for imminent demolition by the Israeli army, which would have displaced 340 people. A campaign by Rebuilding Alliance and other groups led to protests in the European Union and led to Israel lifting the demolition date. But with violence continuing, the village is hardly safe from destruction. Just since the beginning of October, over 2,000 Palestinians have been injured and 77 have been killed. Illegal settlements in the West Bank fuel the clashes. Prime Minister Netanyahu attempted to downplay the size of the illegal settlements at the Center for American Progress this week, saying that settlement construction has made up a tiny fraction of built-up land, around one-tenth of one percent. The reality is that settlements technically cover one percent of the West Bank, but with ten percent of the West Bank included in what's called the municipal area, around 40% of the land is off-limits to Palestinians, with hundreds of kilometers of roads that further divide and destroy Palestinian territory. Jewish Voice for Peace, whose mission includes seeking an end to the Israeli occupation of the West Bank, Gaza Strip, and East Jerusalem, an end to violence against civilians, and peace and justice for all peoples of the Middle East, has a petition at jewishvoiceforpeace.org asking John Kerry to pressure the Israeli government to prevent the destruction of Susia and recognize the right of the Palestinian families who live there to plan their futures on the land they rightfully own. A recent Mike.com photo essay titled 16 Eye-Opening Photos Show What It's Like Going Back to School in Palestine and Israel shows why Jewish Voice for Peace and others have left up their campaigns in support of Susia despite the threat of demolition being downgraded from imminent to quote-unquote on hold. The terrain that very young school children must navigate is overshadowed only by the threat of harassment and violence. It isn't enough that the demolition equipment isn't currently stationed at Susia's edge. When 
our government regularly reminds the world that we are a quote-unquote friend of Israel, the violence and human rights atrocities committed in the West Bank have our name on them. Sign the petition at jewishvoiceforpeace.org asking Secretary Kerry to step in. You can also follow the end the occupation hashtag to keep up on the latest not reported by our corporate media. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. If preventing human rights violations matters to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about the Jewish Voice for Peace effort to save Susia via social media so that others in your network can add their support too. Can you stand up and be counted as a body in a crowd? Put your name on a petition with your signature so proud. Can you raise your voice so loud as you stand with head on bowed, weather beating on your brow, demanding answers here and now? Cause that's how you make a difference in this fickle world of change. We've been seeing significant escalation of violence in Israel. People have written in suggesting I comment on what peace would look like in Israel. What do I imagine a peace deal looking like? It's been over a year and a half since we last discussed this, so I think it's worth revisiting today. Let's issue a disclaimer, Lewis. I don't believe we are close to real peace negotiations today in Israel, partially because both sides want the other side to agree to preconditions that uh, neither side is keen on doing, Although it is possible that negotiations are happening behind closed doors uh, with some of those preconditions that that uh, if they don't have to be announced publicly, there's probably more willingness willingness to grant some preconditions. But let's imagine for now that negotiations could really happen in earnest. What would a deal have to look like? Now, some people will hear my take on this, Lewis, and say, oh, it's too pro-Palestinian and it gives too much to terrorist organization Hamas. Others will hear what I'm going to say and say it sounds too pro-Israeli. I'm trying to think about this as pragmatically as possible. What would realistically have to happen? And there are three categories to look at for this deal. The politics, who's in charge, the security situation involving the Gaza blockade, and the borders. What borders would be part of what I see as a pragmatic deal? Lewis, if I may, let's start with politics. And I think you know what priority number one is for me when it comes to the politics of this. Uh, as, as always, it's going to be Bibi, right? Absolutely. Netanyahu must go, whether it's a resignation, whether it's another election that needs to take place to oust Benjamin Netanyahu. Even more moderate governments than Netanyahu's have not been able to achieve peace and the current right-wing government, which is a coalition government of Benjamin Netanyahu involving some extreme religious right-wing elements, they have no credibility at this point to really achieve peace. So Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, he hypothetically could be involved in some kind of productive peace process, but he has been so beholden to the extreme elements of the Israeli Knesset that it would be best for all if Netanyahu goes. On the Palestinian side, Hamas must be replaced by a more secular Palestinian authority immediately. Does Mahmoud Abbas have a role to play there, who's currently overseeing the West Bank? Yeah, I'm open to that. Hamas certainly isn't, though, having assassinated Fatah members in recent years. And Mahmoud Abbas recently gave this 
just lie-riddled speech at the United Nations. But to the extent that Mahmoud Abbas might be a productive partner, I'm open to him being involved in what must be some kind of secular Palestinian authority that would be in charge. Now, for practical purposes, we should be open to a unity government on paper, which might have some uh, 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 representative elements from Hamas, a demilitarized Hamas that I will get to, merely, Lewis, because uh, there are people who want to see Hamas represented, at least on paper, but the, the, the Hamas of today as it stands cannot really be a part of future peace deals. Yeah, they're just so embedded over there. I mean, how do you really deal with that? And people have been bamboozled into thinking that Hamas uh, has their best interests at heart and that Hamas is protecting them. It, it's the reality is far from that. The law of return for Jews to Israel must be maintained if we are going to really make progress on a peace deal. The entire point of Israel is that since Jews are discriminated against and have been kicked out of so many parts of the world over the last several thousand years, this is a place Jews know they can go to, period. As long as that's maintained in the context of a two-state solution, I don't care about calling it a, quote, Jewish state, in spite of that being sort of the original point. That's very important to some. That wouldn't be a requirement for me as long as we maintain a two-state solution sort of paradigm with the law of return. Now, the Palestinian law of return for Palestinians to return to Israel has to also be conceded, but not for five million Palestinians. It's just not going to happen. So I think a more reasonable alternative that makes sense and will will also be connected to the blockade being released is that anyone who wants to move back to Gaza or the West Bank is free to do so if the eventual Palestinian Authority wants to allow it. It would be their choice. Their sovereignty would dictate that decision. In the past, Ehud Barak, for example, suggested a symbolic number of Palestinians to return to Israel and otherwise significant financial reparations. Practically speaking, Lewis, I think that's going to have to be it. Yeah, well, you know, it's it's a great plan you've outlined. I mean, as soon as those in power on both sides want peace, this might be the way to move forward. Well, let's talk about one of the most controversial elements of this, which is the land arrangement. What would be the borders here? The borders will be more or less the Bill Clinton proposed borders, which are pretty similar to all of the recent ideas. The Palestinian territories will include the West Bank, Gaza, and East Jerusalem. The problem is that the limits of East Jerusalem are currently disputed, but Let's assume that they could conceptually be agreed upon and, and, and assume that there could be some kind of, of process worked out there. Jerusalem would become the capital of Israel for international purposes. West Jerusalem, that is. Many people may not know, within Israel, Jerusalem is considered the capital. Internationally, Jerusalem is not considered to be part of Israel, so Tel Aviv is the capital. I think the, the most pragmatic solution here is that Jerusalem, West Jerusalem, becomes the capital of Israel for international purposes. East Jerusalem becomes part of the Palestinian territories. The caveat being, and this is huge, that the Jewish quarter of the old city remains under Israeli sovereignty. This one point we could talk about for just an hour. It's a very complex situation, but if you go back and research the desecration 
of the Jewish quarter from 1949 to 1967, when it was not under Israeli control, you will immediately see why the Jewish quarter must remain under Israeli sovereignty. Israel must stop all settlement building immediately, and Israel needs to agree to remove settlements in principle. Now, it's, again, thinking pragmatically, some of those settlements you're not going to remove, Lewis, and you've been to Israel, you know what I'm talking about, I was recently there. When there are settlements that cannot practically be removed, you need to offer meaningful land swaps. Any settlement land needs to be made good on by exchanging other land. Uh, Yasser, uh, uh, Yasser Arafat in the past said that he was conceptually open to meaningful land swaps for the settlements that couldn't reasonably be removed. Lastly, security. What happens with travel and movement in Israel, checkpoints, and the Gaza blockade? Palestinians have to stop all rockets immediately and all tunnel building immediately and all tunnels must be destroyed, period. Okay, Hamas must demilitarize Gaza as part of a peace agreement in the two year period after the withdrawal of Israel from Gaza. But before the blockade was put in place, thousands of rockets were fired by Hamas. Hamas must demilitarize Lewis. That is really a non-negotiable part of any potential peace deal. Uh, of course, that's necessary, but uh, good, good luck with that. In exchange, the Gaza blockade would be removed completely as long as no rockets and demilitarization and no tunnel building are held to. The Gaza blockade must be removed if we are going to have a productive peace deal. The key point of all this is whatever agreement is made, all claims must be renounced. This is the end of the conflict. This is very important because once you get both sides to say, this deal includes the, the renouncing of all past claims, you now have a framework which, if violated in the future, is the violation of an international agreement rather than, well, listen, we, we violated some kind of intermediate non-binding thing. It's not really that big of a deal both sides need to renounce all past claims and and that's that's what i see lewis as what needs to happen of course i would bring up the question what happens when one of these sides violates this agreement uh what type of action is taken yeah well everything goes back to exactly the way it is now and a horrible status quo right i mean that i think is is almost inevitable if the if, if such a hypothetical agreement were to be violated Hey, James Lloyd. In response to the last uh, episode, I have to say that I think things are getting taken a little bit uh, to the extreme here. Just go on YouTube, for instance, and, and type in, uh, oh, I don't know, World Star Hip Hop School Fights. And you're going to be spending all day with all the videos that come up. That's why police officers are in school. You know, you have to have some type of order and some type of security. If a teacher had slammed that girl to the ground, then the question would be, well, how come a teacher's doing that? She's not a police officer. She doesn't have a right to do that. That would be the conversation we're having. 
So what I'm saying is, let's not take this a one incident and turn it into this this whole systematic problem that we're having in America. The vast majority of school police officers never do anything like that. They enhance security. They don't cause problems with anybody. This one officer, he did something stupid. He got fired for it. Problem solved. I don't think this needs to be a, a larger issue of what we're going through in America. The, this is a symptom of the school-to-prison pipeline. I mean, before police officers were in schools, several schools were basically just crime centers, you know? Do we do we really? I mean, you take the cops out of school, and then what do you think you're going to go back to? Like, well, like one of the clips was talking about, what's the first thing a kid sees when, when they go to school? A metal detector. Well, why is that? The schools didn't just decide to do that just for the hell of it. There was a, There's a reason behind it. Just focusing on the effect without looking at the cause, that's not doing it justice. And it, it's not factually correct. So, I don't know. What I'm saying is just, uh, I don't see this as being a reason to overreact. It was a bad incident. Justice was served. Let's move on. Hi, Jay. This is Jeff from South Florida. I'm um, calling response to your school-to-prison pipeline episode. In my opinion, it's just my experience. It seems like society, instead of using taxpayer money to solve problems, they've cut a lot of taxes, cut a lot of services, and the only people left to solve some of those problems are police. And take uh, not just schools, but take the homeless problem, for instance. A lot of times the homeless are insane or have mental problems, and there are no services to take care of them. They might, on top of having mental problems, have drug addiction or alcohol addiction to keep them on the street chronically, and there are no services to help them. So get called when they're in front of a place where people don't want them, the police. In short, what I'm trying to say is we've got to stop trying to solve all of society's problems with the wrong tool. When you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. But unfortunately, police officers, we have very few tools at our resources. We're hiring. Right now, we're having a hard time finding enough applicants that just pass the psychological uh, polygraph and the background investigations. So we're hiring people, and we've hired for a long time, people with just a high school education that can do all those things, regardless of, of their education. There's been a force push lately to get more and more educated people, but you still have to pass those the polygraph, the background, and psychological exam. And not all of the people who can do the other parts of this job are fit to be in a classroom. So I just wish that we would stop trying to solve society's problems with the wrong tool. I mean, if you got a hammer, okay. Or if you got a nail, go ahead, use the hammer. But not everything's a nail. Anyway, I hope that made sense. At least made more sense than what I tried to email to you, which was horrible. So, yeah, I'm never going to do that again. That was, that was a mess. Here, if I stutter and I stammer, then it just has to go in. When I use the voice memo thing, I stutter and I stammer and I start over. And it took me 20 minutes to do a 51 second voicemail. So this might not sound as good as that, and it might not have been as clear, but at least you got it. And, you know, there you go. Thanks, man. Enjoy your show. Hi, Jay. My name is Todd from Waverly, Iowa. Longtime listener, first time calling in. I want to bring to light an aspect of privilege that has not yet been mentioned that relates to the caller from Arizona. I am a white cis male over 50, part of the privileged class. I have a sense that those of us in the privileged class are always expected to speak with authority about anything, whether we know something about that or not. And 
As members of that privileged class, we are always given the benefit of the doubt. If others speak up and are shown to be the slightest bit wrong and are not part of that privileged class, then their argument is dismissed out of hand and they are relegated to a class of stupid people. I suspect this contributes to his and my reluctance to speak up in groups because previously we were assumed right until proven wrong and it's okay to be wrong whereas now we have to prove we're right and listen respectfully at the same time that same position of privilege is gone and it's uncomfortable for us to feel like everyone else has felt that's it thanks for a great show jay keep up the good work bye-bye hey jay this is rebecca calling from tacoma washington i was listening to your podcast this morning and you know called me out i've been intending to become a member and um, I didn't realize that you really need a membership that much. So I just went to the website and I intended to become a member, but then I saw that the only way for me to pay it was PayPal. And I hate PayPal. It's really bad. <laughs> so I am imploring you to make a Patreon or a, not a Kickstarter, but I love Google Wallet because I'm a Google nerd, but um, that's probably expensive, but I think Patreon is a little bit less expensive, and I sincerely hate PayPal, like, for more reasons than just the fact that the founder owner is a libertarian and I'm boycotting it. Regardless, um, I don't use PayPal, so I want to support you. I think pledging to make a contribution every month and remembering is probably beyond my capacity because I'm busy, but um, I do want to support your show. So um, please, 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 please come up with a different way for me to support your show. Thanks. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Katie Klubusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply leave a voicemail at 202-999-3991. Now, today, we had an epic showdown between our resident conservative Wade and our resident liberal cop Jeff talking about cops in schools. Unsurprisingly, I'm going to come down on Jeff's side, but I I could uh, add a little bit to it. I think that this is another one of those cases, uh, sort of a go-to for Wade that, you know, he sees a single data point. Like in this episode, we're talking about there is one cop who physically assaulted a teenager and that's what everyone was talking about. And then we were extrapolating about, you know, the dangers and the trouble with having cops in schools from this one issue. Of course, people talking about it and, and who know about this aren't using this single data point. They know that it's part of a larger data set, but it just so happened that in the episode, uh, there was a lot of focus there. So Wade sees one data point, but he doesn't see the larger data set or the trend that it indicates and becomes either suspicious or dismissive of it. 
And the other problem with having just a single particularly bad instance to reference is, you know, you're going to get those kind of reactions that are like, you know, say you're talking about racism, you know, you'll get the reaction like, oh, sure, I'm sure there's like one dude out there who still wears a white hood and sets crosses on fire, but, you know, he's going to be ostracized from the community and he's not going to have that big of an impact. It's not like racism really exists. And similarly with these cops in schools, uh, yeah, this is a particularly bad instance where everyone saw it was terrible and uh, the cop was fired from his job and so forth. So he was ostracized from the community. But it doesn't mean that having cops in schools and all of the minor or, you know, far more minor interactions that they have with students isn't still having a negative impact. Uh, and so that's kind of what Jeff is getting at. That, like, we have to think about how we react to things and if everything looks like a nail and you always pull out the hammer then you know that's what you end up with and so we have cops in schools and i heard this phrase recently uh the more popular one is to catch a tiger by the tail but what i heard recently i, I like better i like the visuals is to have caught the tiger by the ears because then you're looking them right in the face and i think that's sort of what we've done with these cops in the schools like wade said you know the cops aren't there for no reason there were problems in the schools. So we reacted and we had to do something. Now the question is, did we do the right thing? And by using force to control people, did we actually put ourselves in a worse position in the long run? So we've, we've got the tiger caught by the ears and we're at this uncomfortable status quo, but maybe we can't let them go now because people, just like tigers, don't like being caught by the ears and held in place. And so there's, uh, even though you're trying to make things better, you're actually making things worse. And so we have the people in power using force to control the people who are disempowered in the situation. And there seems to be no end game in mind. There, there's not a, a broader perspective about what are we trying to accomplish here? Uh, are, are we keeping kids in line until we can send them out into, into the world? Or are we actually trying to do something productive? And if we are trying to do something productive, are the cops in schools uh, subtracting from that goal more than they are adding to it? Even if your intention is to create a safe place for people to learn, maybe you're not actually having that impact in the long run for the majority of the people. And by the way, uh, does this kind of unequal power dynamic with abuse of force remind you of anything else. Secondly, today, I, I thought the comments about uh, sort of the discomfort with l losing one's privilege to a small extent, where you, the conversation about privilege has progressed to the point where people with privilege are being called out and not uh, you know, their word is not being taken as gospel anymore, and that is uncomfortable for people who have had that privilege all along. And clearly, I, you know, anyone who hears that, for the most part, is going to say like, oh, I mean, well, like, screw them then, <laughs> you know, I mean, get over it. Welcome to the club, right? And that's a perfectly fine and normal reaction. I think it's an interesting comment still, though, because, uh, you know, take psychology into effect First of all, privilege does not guarantee a, like a happy life, just like money doesn't. You know, a, a person can be poor and happy, just like a rich person can be rich and miserable. 
Uh, so, you know, if you're the if you're the Bob Cratchit of privilege and you see the Scrooge of privilege lose half his privilege, you know, his bank account gets, uh, you know, cut in half, wiped out. You, know, you may think like, no big deal. He, he was so rich. He was so privileged anyways. Uh, that's hardly going to affect him. But psychology, human psychology is structured in such a way that we hate losing stuff. We hate it. And uh, the degree to which we hate losing stuff far eclipses the degree to which we enjoy gaining stuff. Uh, you know, think, think about it for just a second. If you were to lose $500, how would that feel? And if you were to unexpectedly gain $500, how would that feel? Obviously, one feels pretty good and the other feels pretty bad. But on average, people are going to hate to lose that money that they already had more than they're going to enjoy unexpectedly gaining money that they didn't expect to be getting. So I think similarly, you know, go, same idea goes with privilege. People who have privilege, like, I'm not saying you need to cry a river for them, but understand that human psychology works the same for all of us. And if you have privilege and then you realize you are either, you know, losing it kind of, but you're being called out for it, you're being made to recognize it and all of that, uh, all of these things that you never had to do before, that is uncomfortable. That's why we talk about the, the discomfort with uh, recognizing one's privilege is because something is being lost. Our innocence is being lost. Our ignorance is being lost. And that is an incredibly uncomfortable thing to go through. Luckily, the other thing about uh, human psychology is that all this sort of stuff is temporary. Huge gains, huge losses, they may affect us in, in the short term, uh, even very dramatically, but in the long run, everything pretty much evens out. And so for those of us who either are going through or have gone through a period of recognizing our privilege and being very uncomfortable about that, uh, don't worry. Uh, the the waves settle down and uh, you totally get over it and you can be totally comfortable going forward. Uh, it may take a little while to get used to it, but once you're there, trust me, it's not difficult. And lastly today, I'm happy to announce that there is another payment method available as requested by the caller who we all heard. I have a payment option available that is not PayPal. If you would like to sign up for a membership, but you hate PayPal with a fiery passion, uh, even though, as a side note, it is no longer owned by a libertarian uh, maniac. Yes, a libertarian founded the company, but he, as far as I can tell, he's not involved and hasn't been for a long time. Anyways, I'm not trying to convince anyone to not hate PayPal. I deal with them probably more than any of you. I know all the reasons why you should hate PayPal. So if you don't want to use PayPal, I have another option available. Simply go to the Contribute tab on the website, and then there is a you know little link over on the side. Hey, are you looking for something other than PayPal? Click here, and all the details are there for you. Now, I am happy to say that no one thought they needed help remembering to sign up for a membership by holding themselves up to public accountability, uh, but there were a flurry of new members, maybe maybe half a dozen in just a couple of days, which is pretty good. Uh, so thank you so much to everyone who signed up, and congratulations for being able to do that without the, uh, the external motivation of uh, public scrutiny. Excellent job. 
Uh, of course, the offer still stands. This experiment is still young. If you need help remembering to become a member, even though you've been meaning to for who knows how long, I am here to help. Simply call in and pledge to become a member, and I will make sure everyone knows so that you can get that extra little boost of motivation you need to finally sign up. The number again, 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show, of course, by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Get even more from us by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of a Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a crying shame How we get so trained We can't see past our sad stories and wonder what we're missing we can't see past our sad stories and forget how to listen we can't see past our sad stories and wonder what we're doing